This is episode number 405 with lead data scientist at Axpo Group, Thomas Obrist. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. Today's episode is going to be more of the advanced type. We've got Thomas Obrist joining us, who is a lead data scientist at Axpo Group. And now while Thomas's title is lead data scientist, uh, the work that he does more resembles uh, the work of a quant, a quantitative analyst in a financial firm. And But in this case, the difference is that this is not stock trading, uh, this is not financial trading, this is energy trading. Um, but the principles are the same. So why is this episode quite advanced? This episode is more advanced because we're going to be talking about how uh, you can analyze data as a data scientist versus how you can analyze the same data as a quant, as a quantitative analyst. And what are the differences? Uh, what are the approaches? How how do they differ? Uh, we'll be mentioning things like Monte Carlo simulations, for example, stochastic principles and things like that. So this episode will be useful to you if you're specifically interested in analyzing data in the space of trading, of stochastic processes, uh, of financial markets and analysis like that, or if you're specifically interested in the energy sector, if you're interested in the energy uh, markets and what's going on there, this episode will also be useful to you. So if you're in one of those two groups, you might find some very valuable insights in this episode. Um, so just keep in mind that it's quite specific to those areas. Um, things that we'll talk about, uh, long versus short, uh, long, uh, long trading versus short trading, psychology in trading versus data, uh, quantitative analysis versus data science. Uh, we'll touch on the Monte Carlo simulation. Uh, we'll learn about the energy industry. Uh, Thomas is going to share a use case uh, called the grid losses uh, for one of the European countries and analysis that he was doing. Uh, very interesting. And you'll hear about how to how he has to deal with uncertainty that comes from other uncertainty, where a lot of inputs like wind data, solar data, weather data are being input into his model, and he has to model them to provide uh, to find out what the prices are going to be. But in the first place, those models, the, that data that's coming in, is actually a model itself. So we don't know. He doesn't know the wind data, the solar data for the next day. So dealing with uncertainty driven by more uncertainty. Uh, how he goes about that. We'll talk about out-of-sample testing and uh, shadow trading. We'll talk about the trade-off between testing and trading. And we'll talk a bit about organizing hackathons, something that Thomas has experience in. So there we go. We've got this advanced episode coming up. I uh, hope you enjoy. And without further ado, I bring to you Thomas Oberst, Elite Data Scientist at Axpo Group, Switzerland. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And today we've got a special guest calling him from Switzerland, Thomas Obrist. Thomas, how are you going? Hi, Kruel. Thanks a lot for having me. Very good. How about you? Very good as well. Super pumped uh, to finally have uh, this podcast. Um, we've known each other for quite some time, right? Like, what, it's been a year and a half or, or two years? Yeah, I think around two years. Two years ago, we met. Yeah, and uh, you, you've you um, had quite an interesting career growth since then, right? So you've uh, moved uh, from, I think, you were, were you still um, finishing university back then when we met? I think uh, we just met after my master's degree. So I started my training at Axpo. Uh -huh. um, and since then, now I'm um, the, the quant for short-term trading for Axpo origination. Gotcha, gotcha. And how are you feeling about this podcast? I mean, it's uh, great. I'm a bit nervous, but uh, it's going to be fine. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's going to be fine. Uh, lots of cool topics. 
uh, to cover off. But before we get started, before we dive into um, your profession, your role, tell us a bit about like what uh, your background is. What what did you study at uni, and have you always been in Switzerland? I, I forget. You, were you are you originally from Switzerland? Yes, uh, I'm born in Switzerland. I grew up in Switzerland, and I studied in Switzerland. Uh, so I studied mathematics at ETH in my bachelor's, mm-hmm. uh, mostly focused on probability theory and statistics. Mm-hmm. And then um, I worked as a one year for as a consultant, like a gap year between bachelor's and master's. And then I did my master's um, in quant finance. But mm-hmm. with my math background, I mostly focused again on the math part, on probability, and deep my knowledge in probability theory. Uh, during my master's, actually, I got really interested in uh, data science uh, back then. Uh, back then, it was not, not that long ago, but still, uh, do, uh, during my year, uh, any IT course or lectures or data science or st- like more uh, machine learning approaches, they were not part of my curriculum, but I took them anyway because you can, at ETH, you can basically take more or less each, every class. You just don't get the points. I mean... You, they write it down on your diploma, but you don't add it up. Uh, so I took a lot of IT lectures uh, during my master's because I think it was pretty fun to take. Um, and I was uh, using it for master, my master thesis. So my focus was like probability theory, a bit IT, and then some finance lectures on top of it. Mm-hmm. So, so you, uh, what was the thesis? Uh, my thesis uh, was the topic, I actually don't remember the full name. I, uh, I mean, the topic was like, I use deep uh, reinforcement learning uh, to predict Bitcoin prices. Oh, wow, man, that's so, that's so exciting. And were you able to pre- predict it? Uh, I would say um, not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, like, uh, actually, should you use it again? The, the issue was like, it was when during the hype. So during the hype, I mean, everything went up. So it went to, I think, January. Mm. 2018, end of 2017, start of 2018. It went up right. to 21,000. Uh-huh. Yeah, end of 17. So uh, during this time, uh, I mean, the, every algo will have worked nice because if you only go long and every goes, everything goes up, um, nothing can fail. So, yeah. <laughs> but then at the end of 20... Kind uh, of like Tesla, Tesla stock prices right now. Exactly. Like you cannot fail trade Tesla for the last half year because... This is not this is not trading advice for everybody <laughs> listening to this podcast, right? Like we're not advising to buy or sell any kind of stocks. It's just it's just a speculation, I guess. And it's like a huge uh, move. And during this time period, you can run an algo, and the algo basically cannot fail if you can only go along. Because um, yeah. uh, in uh, eighteen seventeen, like a lot of the exchanges, they didn't allow to go short, so you could not uh, like um, design an algorithm who would kind of short Bitcoin. Now, now there are way more exchanges who very could do that, but so therefore I designed as well the algo who always goes long and yeah, yeah. <laughs> goes to dollar like long or dollar. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, during this time part, like the, the back test or in out of sample testing was. Oh, Thomas, can, can you explain long and short? Maybe some people listening. I just realized that it's not common, uh, you know, terms that maybe some people are not familiar with. Ah, okay, of course. Um, so, I mean, uh, easy speaking without uh, all the financial transaction. If you go along on an asset like Tesla, you are betting basically that the stock price will go up and you profit from uh, an up movement. But if you go short, you're betting that the price goes down. So assuming you would have shortened Bitcoin at 21,000 and you would have closed your position at like 10,000 and you have one Bitcoin, you would have made 11K by... Bitcoin going down. So you can bet uh, on both directions. Um, it's basically long and short. And um, I mean, it's just a directional view. So um, exactly. So uh, my back test and my out of sample testing for my master thesis was really good, kind of. But then, even whatever algo you have, while during the period afterwards where it fall, fall from 21,000, I think, to the lowest was like 40. Uh, $4,800 of uh, Bitcoin. I mean, during the time period, if you only can go long, um, yeah, you automatically lose all the time. Because, I mean, if you do not, 
However, as soon as you do something, you basically lose. So the alt was not that nice. Uh, I think the issue was as well for like a deep reinforcement learning that the time period you have for Bitcoin to actually do something was not huge. So uh, there was not that much data. So, I mean, now I have kind of been more advanced, I would say, after like after some years of actual using data science in real work environment, I would say my my algorithm was kind of overfit um, quite heavily <laughs> because there was not so much data. Another thing is like, there's not so much fundamental data where you can actually predict like what's Bitcoin dependent on. Like, uh, well, what should you use an impact? Yeah, you could use like all the indicators and build a lot of stuff based on price data, but there's not like uh, something more fundamental, like, I don't know, oil prices correlated to Bitcoin. Some extent, perhaps. I never tested, but um, so uh, it makes it really difficult to actually fit that such a heavy structure, like a deep reinforcement learning framework to Bitcoin prices. So I, 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 now with my modern experience, it looks like heavily overfit, like not heavily overfit, but the generalization kind of bad. Um, and the issue is kind of for Bitcoin, you have limited data and then this data is kind of fake as well, because actually you have just one realization of reality. Uh, like it's a stochastic process, but you actually just observe one timeline. Uh, I mean, this is how life is, but uh, this is kind of difficult for training because uh, actually like in the situation when you want to predict Bitcoin at 2K, like $2,000 uh, value, it's a complete story, different story than at 20,000. But if you use like a deep learning uh, neural network, uh, you assume kind of independence uh, so that they have more samples to train on. But this is actually not true because they are heavily correlated. I mean, to some extent, people behave differently uh, if Bitcoin is at $10,000 than they were if Bitcoin was at $10. So even if you have three, the, the points are not independent of each other and like the whole bull run. I mean, um, this is uh, difficult then to generalize on. Okay, yeah, I totally understand. So the way the way I understood it is that um, your deep reinforcement or deep uh, yeah reinforcement learning algorithm is looking at prices as just price points which compare each other or go compare in comparison to each other and like movements in the price. It doesn't really care whether it's twenty thousand or twenty uh, euros, but uh, for people that's a big difference in terms of psychology. Uh, exactly, like the issue is not like that. I had like inputs like the price itself. I mean, it was kind of standardized, normalized, and so on. So there was not like 20,000. The algorithm knew exactly it was 20,000. It was more looking at the difference between how it moved. But the psychological factor, I mean, there was a lot of times where Bitcoin kind of stopped before 10,000 because just the change from like four numbers to five numbers um, had a big impact on how people behaved. So Bitcoin was really traded like heavily, like, with a psychology, psychology approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Therefore, um, there was a lot of emotions in the market, basically, and yeah. uh, was really dependent on the level where it was. So an algo who kind of got standardized inputs, I mean, he wasn't aware of this and how could he? Yeah. Because how you treat emotions to a trading bot. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. like I mean, you can, you can build feature space and okay, 10,000 could be like, I don't uh, like a one or a zero or something like this, and you can make borders or you can build features around this. But then you need to know which they are. And if you already know them, why should you build an algorithm for doing it? Like, uh, yeah. then you can just trade it. Like, then you don't need uh, a huge structure. Like, I mean, if you know where the borders are, then there's no point in using an algorithm. Then you just trade it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. We've got over two and a half thousand video tutorials, over 200 hours of content and 30 plus courses with new courses being added on average once per month. So all of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Okay, very interesting. But let's move on to um, what you do now. So 
Uh, tell us a bit about uh, your role. So you're the lead data scientist at uh, Axpo Origination for West and East Europe. Um, what what is Axpo and what does the company do? So Axpo Group is uh, Swiss utility. So uh, in Switzerland, uh, we have a lot of assets like there are uh, river plants, water pump storages. Uh, there are as well some nuclear plants, uh, which are more like partially owned or mostly owned by Axpo and operated on. Um, but myself, uh, I work for Axpo Trading or Axpo Solutions, as it's called. Uh, this is a uh, part of the group. And what we do, we are not, we don't have any assets. Uh, we kind of, we trade around them. So we bring the assets of Axpo to the market. Um, because, um, like Axpo Group itself, the utility, they just produce, uh, energy, but we manage their assets, uh, like their energy. Uh, actually, uh, myself, I'm in Axpo origination. So I have actually nothing to do with Switzerland. <laughs> um, has as well, some, um, trading activities in other parts in Europe and in, in the US. Um, so for example, myself, uh, we, I, I am the quant for origination. So for a short term time part, so I do everything about data science and quant stuff, uh, for several European countries like Belgium, France, Netherlands, Austria, Czech, Slovakia, uh, up to Turkey. Um, what origination is, uh, origination is basically, uh, if you are a steel client, uh, my department could offer you a contract, uh, to supply energy for your production for the next two years or one year or three years, uh, such that you're hedged. So uh, if you're still producing, this is really nice because you don't need to worry or about uh, power prices. I mean, you can produce as long as you want because uh, you are basically have any, don't have any power risk. We take the risk for these companies and we manage this risk. Mm-hmm. And then gotcha. um, we have this PPAs, it's called. This is Power Purchasing Agreements. Uh, where we kind of be, uh, buy the power from wind parks and solar parks. Uh, assuming you have, you build huge wind parks, then you don't want to worry about like production risk as well. I mean, production power, uh, the power price risk. You just want to have a good power price for your plants and then you want to produce as much as possible. So we take care of this risk as well. So we manage this, uh, wind parks on the market. Uh, for people who have built these parks. We don't, I mean, there's part of the company who build wind parks as well and solar parks for Axpo, but it's not the trading part. So we just manage them after they are built, we manage uh, their production on the market. So we go and sell and try to hedge it. It's like Axpo is a massive company on one hand, produces uh, energy itself with uh, different uh, kinds of energy with different sources. Uh, But then on the other hand, uh, you also purchase energy from other companies out there, wind parks and solar parks and other energy producers. And you also sell that energy supply and sell that energy to, um, uh, whether it's, uh, clients, not like mo- mom and dad clients, but like big companies, like you said, a steel production plant, which requires lots and lots of energy per year. Um, and, uh, you create agreements with them so that they know what they will be paying for energy in the next year, three years, or five years. Um, is that about right? Exactly. So we managed we managed the risk for all. Yes. Okay. Good. So where where um, so you said you're a quant. What's what is the difference between a quant, a data scientist, and a data analyst? Yeah. Like so. For example, a data analyst. We have a lot of uh, data. Uh, 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 analysts, not data analysts, but analysts, uh, they study uh, the market in really deep. So they read through newspaper, I don't know, Russian newspaper, and try to see where gas prices might be going. Uh, or they read all the news regarding nukes development uh, with a uh, nuke de- breakdown in Germany. I mean, happened, but, uh, or in France, what's going to happen in France? Uh, what politics decide, uh, political reg- regulation. So it's less... I mean, it can be quantitative, but it is a lot of you know, like uh, seeing where markets are going based on news event and other stuff. So it's not doesn't need to be quantitative because uh, it's just a lot like they have a lot of experience and they read and see where. Right. And we have uh, like I would say I differentiate now between like data science and quants. I mean, 
I think they're kind of a mixture and a good quant can use data science while a good data scientist can, has quant skills. Uh, I mean, here I see a data science, like a people who go have a training set, a test set and build like um, machine learning models on top of it. While quants, uh, they can run simulations like Monte Carlo simulations uh, and then they can calculate the probability and based on their probability, they can make a price. And if um, this price is better than what you get at the market, you go and buy and sell. So it's kind of a different approach. It's both really data heavy. So like a, you both do a descriptive analytics of the data. But I would say the methods or mathematical methods they use is a bit different. So, I mean, traditionally, like you see a lot of quants in risk management uh, to do pricing and analysis. But you can do as well like quant-related models for trading, like predictive uh, models as well. It's less, I mean, I would say like easy quant models to differentiate just as an example would be kind of, you look at stochastical outliers. So you calculate the probability if something like this happens, which is an outlier, you assume this would follow afterwards. Uh, because uh, if you look at the outliers there, you have like, uh, you might have, you don't need to, but like you might have higher correlations between different prices. While a data scientist, I mean, you can uh, think of these things all as well. Like it's not like excluded, but I would say like the approach is a bit different. You uh, you go and you try to build models, you filter the space, uh, you try to build features. Like this, the language is a bit different. At the end, uh, the models don't need to be necessarily hugely different, but like I would say the language is a bit different. And I think uh, right now, since there are a lot of data scientists quite new to a lot of companies, I think it's a little bit split. So what a quant does and what a data scientist does. Uh, I, I think in the future, depending on which field, of course, um, they will mix a bit uh, because I believe that like, I mean, you need to, if you want to be a good quant or data scientist, you just don't want, don't want to use just a hammer. You want, if you need to saw something, you need to have a saw. <laughs> so like, I see it like one tool or, or any other, but a, a good uh, kind of worker can use both tools. Um, so. Therefore, I split it a bit differently between the like these three groups. I mean, the analyst, um, yeah, he can do a lot of things as well. Like he can could do data science models as well. I mean, for his daily work, and most times he doesn't just need it. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I will differentiate the three different groups. Okay, interesting. So I'm specifically interested in the quant versus data scientists. Let, let's dive into that a bit more. Uh, the difference between the two models, like for a data scientist, um, if you, let's say you want to do a simple pr prediction of price uh, based on a linear regression, you just use your, um, you have your training data, you have your test data, very straightforward, you pass it through the, um, uh, what's you call it, your model, uh, and there you go, you have a model. Like how, um, in this, you know, simplifying things, how would you say, uh, a, a quant approach, you said Monte Carlo, how is that different? Like, what is the principal thinking behind it that is different? Um, I, I would say, I mean, um, in general, uh, a quant goes and perhaps like, okay, he uh, looks at, for example, different quantiles. So assuming um, like a linear regression, you would just take your price data, let's say a power price data for, I mean, not that this will work, so don't try it, but like uh, you take a uh, uh, price data of Germany, you put it in a linear regression to like take like 10 legs, and then you make a prediction based on this. Uh, a quant will go perhaps on the look like, okay, uh, I normalize my data, I look like um, at all the quantiles. So power prices moved yesterday, uh, uh, like by 10 euros. This would be like in, the, in 10 euros on power, power prices in Germany for the car is a lot. This would be a really high move, like a how uh, extreme move. And then you could compare historically, you look at two years data and you see like what happened afterwards. If I was in this high move uh, environment or this high volatility environment, what happened on the day afterwards? And then if you see normally, for example, you could say, okay, with a uh, probability of 60% after this extreme move, the price is reverted down. Uh, you could do a model and say, okay, if I observe this, uh, this high move, I, I go short, so I will sell a cull and I bet that the prices go down. I mean, this will be uh, one idea which is could come to the same conclusion as a data science model, but it's a different approach. Both use data and kind of train because you, yeah. depending on where you set your border, like border, 
it could be a 10% quantile move or a 5% quantile move and so on. Uh, so you have a training and a fitting phase, uh, but uh, it's just kind of a different approach in my in my view. It's, I mean, yeah, a bit different, I would say. Uh, but Quantwork okay. and, uh, I mean, it's less about Monte Carlo. Uh, Monte Carlo, you could more use for pricing as a quant. So you run a simulation and you get a price. For example, on my work, uh, like, uh, as I said, my department, we go and have this power purchasing, purchasing of wind parks. Um, yeah. Not wind parks itself, but the power of wind parks. So the question there is like, uh, what will be uh, the short-term risk? Because I'm doing the just short-term. What will be the short-term risk in two years? Uh, for this, I need to know where the whole wind in Europe is going and what will be the price uh, of this in two years. Uh, because I need to make a quote for, let's say, our originator, like our sales person, sales, uh, like originator who goes to the client. Um, so he needs to have a price. So I give him the price and therefore I need to run simulation. What could happen? Because it's kind of a probability. It can, uh, yeah, it's less a prediction. It's more like uh, an expected value, for example. Because I know it will deviate from there. So my pro it's not a forecast because I know it's going to be wrong but it's more like a risk view. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, could you explain Monte Carlo in like, in a, in a few sentences? How does, how does a simulation work? I find it quite interesting. I mean, it's, uh, I would say rather easy. So if you simulate different stochastic processes, so you can assume probably like distributions, you can take historical distributions or other things. And then you run uh, these distributions and you look at how they interact uh, numerically. It's basically a numerical approach uh, to mixing distributions, <laughs> easy said. And then you can see like how it, it will converge. For example, the issue with this is often that you only observe like one year of data or two years where it's which is relevant. So uh, I mean, uh, let's say in Europe, uh, the short term like has changed a lot during the last few years. So like there has been way more wind parks and solar parks because uh, Germany and most like uh, every European country basically is building more wind and solar. But Germany was kind of a front runner, like they built a lot of wind and uh, solar power. So the issue is like, since it's changed so much, um, it, you cannot go back 10 years. I mean, I have data for 10 years perhaps, but like 10 years ago, the data is uh, kind of useless because it's such a different environment now. So with Monte Carlo simulations, I don't just take historical costs of one year. I can run what would have been a fair price if this would have happened based on different stochastic process, which I can interfere uh, and see, okay, um, this is kind of an expected value. Uh, it's because one year is just like, it can has a huge variance. You can eat, um, yeah. And you need to filter out this variance because uh, what, what's the issue with variance is like, uh, for example, you have seen that the cost on the short term for a wind park was in 2019 was huge, but perhaps you were kind of unlucky. <laughs> uh, I mean, so perhaps, I mean, wind is still huge, but like this was extremely huge. Uh, so you don't want to give for 2021, for example, the 2019 price, what you observed, because this might be way too high and then you don't get the contract. I mean, the goal is to sign contracts and to manage more assets. So we want to give a fair price, uh, which is kind of what, um, yeah, perhaps in 2021, it will be low again, perhaps, but we want to know what is the expected price and then we can manage the risk. Okay, wow, sounds, <laughs> sounds like you got a lot of things going on. Sounds very complex. Not only have to think about the data, but all the contracts and managing. Um, so I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, we, you uh, are, responsible for trading at Expo. Um, and that's like trading energy, as I understand, on a daily basis. Uh, can you tell us, uh, put, to put into perspective, what are your, what is the amount of uh, funds that you are responsible for trading every year? Uh, I, I will say it's, uh, I mean, uh, the, the data, the models, which uh, are live on the market, which, I mean, I only trade over models, basically. Uh, currently, there are around, let's say, 20 million a year, which gets traded over these models. 20 million euros? Yes. Okay. Um, 
that is a huge amount and like how 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 do you approach this like for instance um what's uh what what do you what kind of like things do you look at tell us like about your day-to-day what what is uh what is involved in your day-to-day as a a quant uh, on the trading space um so since my department is mainly basically origination or let's say kind of contact with clients uh, they're not some like we don't have like a huge department with uh, a lot of uh, uh, quants. So I do a lot of uh, different stuff, which I really like. So it's really uh, a lot of variance. So I started as a data scientist, but I kind of, I mean, as a mathematician, I use more and more quant models, but so it's really different. So sometimes I do pricings, which is more like, let's say, quant related, where I run simulations and see what will happen in two years uh, or what is my view on two years with the short-term pricings. Uh, but sometimes I uh, there's a, a new contract, for example, for a steel client or not steel, but like an other, let's say, for example, a grid loss client, uh, then we need to forecast these grid losses. So I get a lot of data. Uh, and then the be- the thing is I need to build a model, uh, which goes and they, every day to the market and buys the energy to supply this client. Um, and then I spend days working on this model, fine-tuning it, looking that it, it works well. Then I put it live on the market and it starts trading. Um, so it can be hugely variant, but uh, I'm myself, I, um, I'm as well, sometimes I trade manually. So sometimes I get calls to execute uh, some trades on the market. So it's really a huge variance, which I really love about my job. So my day-to-day job looks basically every week different. It's always about like short-term trading, but it's sometimes really trading, like really going to market and trade imbalances. Like we get uh, live updates from a lot of wind parks and sometimes we need to go and manage them manually. Um, then uh, I build models uh, like re- let's say data science, machine learning models would try to predict as good as possible uh, different client profiles. Um, then I do the pricing on the short term. So it's really uh, quantitative related. Um, I would say these are the main three things. I would say most of my time I spend doing uh, prescriptive analytics. So I try to understand what's happening. Uh, also times if you really understand what actually happened, uh, then you can adapt your models uh, to be better, build features, or do really simple uh, adjustments in the future. Um, it's really a lot of things, it's so many things going on and every day you get a lot of feedbacks. You have so much data coming back every day from each European country, so much price data, things that happen, things that might go wrong. Um, and then you need to understand kind of what happened. Like, um, I mean, for, for example, COVID was an interesting time period out of several aspects. Um, I mean, um, just on the market. <laughs> so at the beginning of the lockdown, everything shut down. Uh, but we don't like how it short term works on energy trading, on power trading. You trade at the next day. So I trade tomorrow at uh, 12 o'clock today. So I need to make a forecast today at 12 for tomorrow, 24 hours. Um, so during COVID, what happened was kind of that all your demand forecast, because you don't know which factory shut down when, which machine, um, or like which, um, Re, uh, like which homes uh, did more energy during this time or like what kind of nobody knew kind of what's going to happen exactly i mean everybody expected it there would be less demand but when and how like you need to forecast um on an hourly basis it gets traded on an hourly basis in most european countries but for example in germany you can trade up to 15 minutes so yeah um like uh, what i mean with 15 minutes you can trade 50 minutes delivery times so it's really like you can need to be really precise. So this uh, during this time period, all your data, demand data was kind of wrong, but you never knew kind of how wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, market, what happened in the market was kind of that, not everywhere, but there was too much energy produced because people thought, okay, they will need it, but at the end they, need, they needed it. So the market was loaded with energy. Um, and uh, at the end, uh, the balancing mechanism needed to take out energy. So there was too much energy around on the short term. Uh, stuff like this, you need to understand and think about, okay, it was it just now or it will be this the future? Like how long will this trend last uh, for this kind of period where everything shut down? 
it was really short because this happened during a week and then you knew, okay, now we have on the new levels and market markets got regulated or normal again. But uh, there are other trends and you're thinking like, okay, well, why is this happening? What could be the cause of it? Uh, and how could I adapt it to it? So how could I position myself to not get harmed by it and uh, manage the risk? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So um, you mentioned um, uh, you do like several things, uh, several different things. Are you able to share a use case with us to just like give an example? Yes, for example, uh, I think one really interesting use case was grid loss. So uh, if you pump energy... What is grid loss? Uh, exactly. Like, uh, if you pump energy through a cable, uh, you uh, the energy gets lost on the way. So, if you have a starting point and endpoint, you pump energy in at the starting point, and you take out energy on the endpoint. There will be a difference because during tra transport, you lose energy during. For how much energy you lose? Um, oh, actually, in, on percentage, I'm not too sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not that much. I mean, depends on the cable. Like, if it's high frequency, low frequency, the distance, uh, resist, like a lot of stuff. How many transformers you have, and uh, so on. But like on an actual level, I don't know. Uh, to be honest. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I mean, uh, what I did was was the use case was like we needed to supply this energy on the day ahead. So uh, I got like uh, one year of data to four, or like two years of data. And then the idea was to forecast this for the next day, so for yeah, over a different time period. And these grid losses, I mean, there are a lot of physical factors on what are dependent, like high frequency, low frequency, or other things. Like, but these are all static uh, factors. So this is really easy to spot with the, your data. You can the level you can easily um, 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 you can really mark down these levels, but uh, there are like uh, variable technical losses on grid losses. So these variable losses, they are basically dependent on how much energy runs through it. So the longer the cable and the more energy runs through it, the higher the grid loss. And this is kind of where the problem starts. Um, it's really difficult. Like we're not speaking about grid loss. If, I don't know, in a small um, home, it's like on a, uh, like a country level of uh, one of a European country. So it's kind of a big grid loss <laughs> with a big cable. Um, and so like how much energy runs through it and it's temperature dependent, which temperature you take if a whole country. So, <laughs> so um, I mean, or like um, there are many factors. And then uh, with more renewable energy, normally renewable energy is not produced where people live. So this is a good example is Germany. Like there are a lot of wind parks uh, in the north of Germany. But a lot of people live in the south of Germany. So if wind gets produced, it needs to be basically transported like from north to south. So the, there's more grid loss based on renewables. But for example, on the other side, uh, if you have more solar panels on your rooftops, these people have less grid losses because they don't need energy from the grid. Um, and so on. Or like wind parks, for example, you have huge offshore wind parks in um, front of Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, and so on. And if they produce, they have a long time to get to the people because they are offshore, like they're out in the ocean, basically, uh, like um, yeah, no, out in the sea. So uh, this takes uh, way more time. So a lot of, I would say this makes it really interesting. So it's not just like price data. It's really kind of, there are fundamental things uh, why this grid loss is happening. It's temperature dependent. Um, then it's dependent on solar production, wind production, uh, wind speed and other things. Uh, and on top, then another difficulty is the demand itself, like how much energy is actually needed. It's difficult to pin down. So like, for example, um, since it's a full country, if you look at grid losses near a city, uh, this is really dependent on how much energy the city produces. So for example, if temperature goes up, the city perhaps heats more. So it needs more power to actually heat, so produce heat. So there might be more grid losses. Uh, and all these factors come together. And if you, you mean if the temperature goes down, they need more heat. Ah, uh, yeah, exactly. Sorry. Or <laughs> if temperature goes down, they need more heat. So grid losses might go up. Um, or, so, for example, in summer, if it's too hot, they turn on uh, AC uh, and they need energy as well. <laughs> so 
there are other factors to take into account, which are not linear. And the issue comes with, I mean, if you would know all these inputs exactly, it would not be that big of an issue. Like it would still be difficult because which temperature? Uh, and so like a lot of questions or like wind, wind production, uh, the one in the north or the one in the south or which solar and so on. There's a lot of uncertainty. But the worst thing is like all this data we are using, we need to decide this today for tomorrow. So for example, wind and solar. So, so like you don't know the wind speed tomorrow. You don't know uh, the temperature in different areas tomorrow. You don't know what, like all of your inputs are unknown as well. Exactly. So all of these inputs, there are other forecasts. So, <laughs> uh, and for example, wind production, let's say uh, wind production has an MAP of around 15 to 20%. So it's huge. What's an MAP? Uh, mean absolute percentage error. So mm. uh, like if you look at the uh, forecast model, wind production uh, can be wrong up to 20%. Or I mean, can be wrong even more, but like in average, the absolute error it's about 20% wrong of your wind production on the day ahead. So today for tomorrow, I have uh, an error up to 15 to 20% error in my forecast. This is just for wind. Then solar is uh, extremely wrong as well. So it's difficult to forecast solar. I mean, uh, just imagine uh, it's no clouds at all uh, tomorrow. You don't see anything on the, on the radar, like uh, on your models, on your weather models. But sometimes there's a small cloud. <laughs> Mm -hmm. don't spot them, but they might be exactly when you want to produce as, uh, your, at noon, so you have your high peak, you want to produce as much as possible, and perhaps then, exactly then, there's a small cloud over your solar panel. So, yes, <laughs> this is kind of impossible to forecast, like how? <laughs> uh, there's no way um, to forecast this on a day ahead. Um, so, therefore, all these inputs I take, they're hugely wrong, <laughs> and I know they're mm -hmm. wrong. So I need to deal with uh, how, how wrong will they be and how yeah. could I study the data itself. So what I did and um, like this was really kind of describing what I see. Okay, if I look at wind, uh, can I spot like how big their error is in orbit which direction? For example, uh, I don't receive only data for the next day. I receive uh, wind data like yesterday for tomorrow, three days ago for tomorrow, four days ago for tomorrow. So one idea could be so like you receive the the wind uh, forecast, yes, which which were in place a day ago for tomorrow, two days ago for tomorrow, and so on. Exactly. Uh -huh. Interesting. So you can observe how the forecast changed over time. Exactly. So this could be a, a feature to study, like um, change. If assuming like if it changes a lot, does it make the wind forecast worse or better? Uh, the mm. same thing. Like, can you spot, like, okay, perhaps, uh, I know now, okay, wind might be wrong tomorrow. Uh, should I position myself differently? Like, uh, should I really just look at the day plus one? Or should I look at, like, deep uh, day plus two, day plus three, day plus four, and look at the different... Um, so there's, like, not just a time perspective that I need to forecast 24 hours. So, like, I need to forecast 12, 1, 2, 3, and so on. Uh, I need to for look at like the data itself, like, okay, the forecast for one o'clock tomorrow, I have one today, I had one yesterday, I had one two days, uh, three days ago, and so on. Um, so I can study this as well. So the data I have is kind of a lot. <laughs> the same thing goes also true for solar, uh, for temperature forecast, then there's like demand forecasts, how much each city needs, and so on. Uh, like, mm -hmm. or like area, it's more area, not like city per se, but like uh, area and all these things changes and they have variances they have uncertainties uh is there a way like i need uh, need to think about like okay is there a way to analyze the different wind inputs uh all of these things have impact uh on the grid loss so at the end uh this is kind of interesting about my job uh, i start a model and i get feedback immediately so i start trading the day and basically tomorrow during the day um I can see if I kind of uh, was right. Okay, metering takes a bit of time, but like, let's say I start trading today and like in five days, I got my feedback. So if I was right or wrong, or was my action good or bad? So this is kind of really, I would say rewarding and challenging since it's mm -hmm. short term, like to think about, okay, uh, was it right or wrong? So I get immediate feedback. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of data to think about. 
uh, all the different wind forecasts and solar production. And then you can think of more things. For example, grid losses get increased as well if, just as a random example, uh, Switzerland, uh, if they buy energy from Germany or import energy from uh, France, it's a different, uh, like, higher grid loss. If they take it from France, then they will produce it inside of Switzerland. So you need not just to think about one country, you need to think about several countries. Uh, one big country we always think about is like Germany, because they have so much wind production. So what's happened if uh, uh, Germany doesn't produce that much wind, uh, they import a lot of energy. And um, But if they have too much energy and they produce a lot with their wind production, they float other Europeans' market uh, with their energy. So there's a high uh, cross-border Trade act like the cross-border trade uh, activity is really high, so uh, it's not just like you need to focus on one country. Yeah, basically, all Europe need to worry about and to think about like, okay, how could this impact? Uh, I mean, of course, if you look at Spain, you don't need to worry too much. Let's say about Ukraine, Ukraine, uh, because like mm-hmm. there's long distance and there's actually I never looked at this data, but like, <laughs> uh, I, I suppose there's not much correlation going on. But like countries mm-hmm. between like let's say. Belgium and France, uh, they have huge impact on each other, or mostly France has impact on Belgium because Belgium is a small country. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, in relation to France, of course. Um, but there are so many things going on and so much data to consider. And all of this data I have basically is wrong um, because there's high uncertainty in each data point. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think this is really interesting to study. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you can spend an eternity just going through, okay, what happens if, I don't know, wind forecast 10 days ago was huge, like on a huge different quantile level, uh, hugely different than one day ago, or two to three, uh, and so on. So uh, there's so much data around, and it makes it really interesting. Mm. So how did your uh, uh, grid loss case study end? Uh, I mean, uh, I produced a model. Um, actually, this was really difficult uh, to produce a model. I, I think I got a good model, which generalizes well. So I uh, did all the testing. But actually, there was a, a third party uh, who claimed they could do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this was a challenge. So my management wanted, of, of course, OK, we should do the same thing, or we, we should be, be even better than they are. Why are we worse? Uh, we had uh, like a shadow trading, we call it. like when we uh, get the third party's inputs on a day-to-day basis, but we don't actually trade them. Uh, the issue is like, nobody sends a bad uh, backtest. So if you are a third party, you need to you send a backtest and you say, okay, this is what we have done. But yeah, as I said, nobody sends a bad backtest. So you never know if it's overfit or not. So uh, definitely have this shadow trading where you go and see, okay, what is kind of the real out of sample testing? Because um, if their out of sample um, performance is like their in sample performance, uh, they should behave the same way. I mean, more or less the same, the same way. If you receive day to day data, then it should replicate their backtest. I mean, hopefully. So, what is schedule trading? Uh, like, schedule trading is like uh, we are interested. Oh, in shadow trading. Uh, You're trading. But I'm yeah. sorry. Shadow trading. Yeah, sorry, I heard schedule. Okay, shadow trading. So, you're trading like a demo version, like you're not trading real money. Exactly. We are not trading it, but we receive the data from this uh, like other company who says like, we would have done that. Because if you receive it on a day-to-day basis, they cannot cheat because uh, mm-hmm. we own it. So they don't actually know what's going to happen. So okay. therefore, uh, let's say for grid loss. You can evaluate. Exactly. So we can have like an out-of-sample testing. The issue mm-hmm. with this is, uh, I mean... You cannot do this forever. Like uh, trading is, uh, is really like short term. You um, market's changing a lot. So if you have something which works, you don't want to do this for two years. So uh, you, yeah. you want to go fast to the market. So there's the issue like you produce perhaps a back test for one year, uh, but then your out of sample testing cannot be in one year. So perhaps you have like mm-hmm. two or one month, let's say, like just as an example, uh, one month where you can evaluate like the out of sample. Perhaps it was a bad one month. So yeah. like, why was it bad? Like, it was, is it still a good idea? Or was it actually bad? Like, uh, there's so many things then to consider. It could be just a bad month. And then you will say, okay, 
do it anyways because we can explain why it was a bad month. But perhaps it was a really good month and then you start actually trading it and it goes south. So it's really hard to evaluate because uh, you don't want to do it too long. Then you lose value because your ideas change. Um, but you, if you do it too short, you kind of have not a statistical sample actually to extrapolate. So how meaningful your out of sample testing is, is like as a data scientist, you want to have as much data as possible. As a trader, you want to generate value as, as soon as possible. So mm. uh, you have this trade-off between testing and actually generating money. Mm. So with this grid loss case, it was uh, difficult. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. there, uh, I tried a lot of things. The issue is why it's so difficult is like, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the market. So, um, and a lot of things who could go wrong and because you have so much uh, wrong inputs to your model. So the, you really don't want to overfit. So you need to think really deep about, okay, uh, perhaps I have four months uh, where my model didn't behave really good. The question was, why? Um, because if I just build a model, which would take this into account, it could be an overfit. Uh, because I, uh, perhaps this situation will not generalize in the future again. So I need to know why it performed bad. I need to know why uh, it happened because if I just build more features, perhaps it might fix it. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you can uh, build higher complexity always and you can introduce more features, build a higher complex model, uh, but, and this will fix your issue on your test set and your uh, training set. But if you look at like, I mean, if you look at your test set several times because uh, your manager came back and said like, oh, do it again, <laughs> then uh, you kind of, might overfit. So you need to balance between uh, overfitting and generalization. I mean, this is always the case, but the difficulty was like that the third party said like, our model generalizes better. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end, I improved a little bit the model with new features, uh, more analysis on the data, uh, capture more uncertainty uh, on the inputs. Um, but at the end we said as well, like, yeah, nobody sends a bad backtest. So the third party, we said like, okay, your backtest was really too good <laughs> to mm-hmm. be true. I mean, I don't say they did a bad, like a wrong job or they wanted to trick us, but it's really difficult um, to actually generalize well, always. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, yeah. I mean, okay. as a, you know the problem, the issue with, um, even if you think your training and test error are good balanced, they might not be because there might be some factor which uh, you don't consider. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, no, uh, very interesting case study. Um, interesting. Um, I like the, the, the trade-off you described about uh, testing and trading, uh, how the markets change really fast. And it's, uh, it's a different thing, like not something you often see in data science, um, this trade-off. So I guess it's specific to uh, applying data techniques in uh, market conditions. Tell us a bit about your hackathon. I, on LinkedIn, I read that you won an international hackathon on predictive modeling of spot prices. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, exactly. So, I mean, uh, as Huxpo, uh, uh, we I did a hackathon for Huxpo. Uh, for Huxpo. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, um, Oxford organized everything. It was for students, so they invite, I mean, every student could have come, but mostly it was ETH students who study mathematics, mostly machine learning and data, like data science, actually. So it was a hackathon for students mainly. It was really nice. So we went for three days in a power plant from Oxford, uh, hmm. somewhere in the mountains. So, so this was before you worked at Oxford? Uh, I, actually, I joined once as a student. And once I was the organizer, so I mean, I was not part of uh, renting a room or something like this, but um, uh, I got the use case and then I prepared the use case. So I gathered all the data. I wrote like a environment, how students can uh, submit their models and how I could models like um, the use case was, um, we have a lot of these wind parks, which we manage the energy. for example, this use case especially was like uh, in the Nordics region, like really north of Europe. Uh, 
all of the swim, not all of the swim parks, but some of the swim parks, they send quite real life data. So you have a, a feed in, like, let's say every 50 minutes of, mm-hmm. of measurement data of how much the park is producing. And you can calibrate your new model, like, and, um, uh, for the end of the day. So you have like an intraday uh, market as well. So you could see uh, if you are really wrong on their head, perhaps uh, you should adjust your intraday updates. So you, you can mm-hmm. trade. Well. So uh, since we have a lot of parks, perhaps the, the use case was perhaps there's a, a correlation we don't see yet uh, between different parks. So for example, um, in, in the if in the east uh, of uh, this Nordic country, um, there was a huge error, but in the West, not, uh, not yet. Perhaps in the, in the hour, the error will be there as well, because I mean, ah, uh, so just as an interesting, uh, like example, but there could be different, um, correlations, which we don't see yet. I mean, this is just one example, but like, perhaps there are things we don't consider yet in our data because we have so much data. Uh, yeah. normally how wind forecasting works is like, uh, you have a position. Uh, you give this uh, to a third party, they will do a mapping between a wind for, uh, wind model, like they look at weather data and everything, and they, they do a mapping how much your wind park produces uh, based on the location it is, which wind turbine it is, and so on. So it's kind of a standalone basis, let's say, like this. Um, but perhaps the, they miss a correlation between different mappings. So like if there was an error in the east, this error could happen in an hour later in the west or in the south and north. Uh, other other things like perhaps you can interfere from one wind park to the other one. So what we did, I gathered all the data from each country uh, for all the wind parks we have, um, and then we gave all this data to the students. So we gave wind speed data, wind temperature measurements, uh, forecast measurements, uh, price data. No price data was just trying to improve the wind forecast itself. Like how much is going this turbine to produce? Um, yeah, this was kind of the use case. It was a really interesting one. Um, I mean, it's, it's really fundamental. You need to start to think about uh, how wind turbine produces energy, uh, how it's dependent on wind speed and other things. And the funny thing in the Nordic country is uh, turbines can freeze. So if huh. temperature is too low, even if you have wind, if it's frozen, it will not going to produce something. So um, yeah. I think this makes it really interesting. <laughs> uh, if they freeze, um, you have a really huge uh, decrease in production. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So how did, the, did it go? Did the students solve the, uh, the hackathon? Uh, I mean, actually, there was at the end one model, uh, which was <laughs> really uh, a simple one with a good, good idea, uh, which was a bit better than the baseline. Uh, honestly, I would say that it was a good hackathon. The students tried a lot, and um, I think it was uh, interesting for everyone. Uh, but I would say, to some extent, it was a bit difficult, perhaps as well. Uh, yeah. Like first thing, you need to understand how, like we introduced them to like the head, the head market works, how intraday market works, when you can trade something, and uh, how a wind turbine is built, how it's producing based on wind inputs, uh, dependencies, and need to get everything was in python so they I mean they uh, know python but we build like libraries for them they that they can access data and other things uh i would say like three days was just not enough to solve this issue. <laughs> um, wow. they tried a lot and uh, i think it was really interesting to see how they progress we did like i would say every half day uh, we did a stop where I evaluated all the current models. So they submitted something, I evaluated them and gave them feedback. Mm-hmm. And we did, did a round of discussions. Um, and um, yeah, it was really fun to see how how uh, they evolve in three days. So at the beginning, the first models were like, okay, let's just try to load the data, do something and submit something. Uh, mm-hmm. So there were really simple models like near regressions or Something is very simple with some inputs. Uh, the second models then were like, okay, uh, I mean, um, they used all their techniques. <laughs> so um, they took a lot of data, built features, put it in a huge uh, models with like high, um, mm-hmm. 
like um, a high degree of complexity. Um, and then they fit everything. And this was the second round. And then everyone was really disappointed. Uh, <laughs> like I had a hidden test set where I evaluated uh, all of um, their models and they didn't have access to it. So it was kind of, mm -hmm. they only can, could test basically four times. So, mm -hmm. they, I mean, they had one test set, they split it itself in training and test, but there was one set which only I, I had. Uh, and then the second one was really disappointing. Like, they tried so much. They, I, with one student, I think I stayed until three o'clock in the room in the morning uh, just to, that he was able to finish uh, his training. Uh, but then it was kind of disappointed because the second round was worse than the first. Uh, mm. What happened was that uh, models were too high, like high complexity. They didn't generalize well uh, outside mm. of their set. So then in the third round, they all cut back. So they went on filtered on features, they filtered on data, they filtered on the complexity and tried to reduce it. But it was really interesting to see like how it evolved uh, and it was really fun. At the end, uh, we had one model which was better than the baseline, but um, overall, perhaps we should have chosen an easier use case and to solve uh, the issue of European, European wind production. <laughs> wow, wow. Very interesting. Interesting to see how um, people adjust their thinking to the, and change the models with uh, your feedback. Okay, this didn't work, make it more complex, no, less complex, and so on. That was fun. Um, Thomas, uh, we're actually running out of time. It's been an hour. It's, it's flown by real quick. Um, before we finish up, just one final question for you. What's your recommendation for somebody who wants to get into this space that you're in, into energy uh, trading, somebody who's maybe a data scientist or, or starting into the space of data science? What would you say is uh, an important thing for them to look into as a first step? I mean, if you really want to go to energy trading itself, I will say as a data scientist, you really need to want to do this. So there's like, it's finance dependent as well. So it's trading. So first be interested in trading, start a little bit of trading in yourself. This always looks really nice. If, uh, even if you're a data scientist, if you kind of have the feeling of being a trader or like you, you know what it is to press the button uh, and actually do a trade. I think this is all, always welcome. So be interested in finance. Um, else, uh, it's really good if you have some knowledge about like more like quantitative approaches. Like, let's uh, discuss in the beginning, like what's Monte Carlo simulation. I mean, a lot of people know it, but like it's not always, let's say if you're really IT heavy and you went from IT side to data science, it's not necessary that you did it. Uh, but yeah, this could be something which is really a plus on your DB. Uh, both these things. Awesome. That's, that's a cool, cool idea. So, yeah, uh, look into what trading is all about. Um, all right. Well, thanks a lot, Thomas, for coming. It's been a pleasure. Uh, before we wrap up, where can our um, listeners get in touch with you and find you? What's the best places to connect? I mean, just drop me a message on LinkedIn and I try to respond. Okay. Awesome. And, uh, uh, one final question for you. What's, uh, what's a book or books you can recommend for our listeners? Uh, I would say I recommend two books. One is uh, Systematic Trading from uh, Robert Carver. Uh, this is about data science. It's more about trading in general. And it gets you thinking about like how could I use a data approach or a quantitative approach for trading. It's, it's a really nice book, really applied book uh, about how to build a framework for quantitative trading. Um, but yeah, and it starts you thinking about how to generalize ideas. Um, and other book, I mean, most times I just read papers, but as a student, I went through deep learning from Ian Goodfellow. Uh, it's a long book, <laughs> but I thought it was worth it. So it's really in detail and I really like to read through it. It takes some time. I think it's like 800 pages, but uh, if you've done it, then uh, uh, I think it's uh, really nice. Is that the one that's for free? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, it's from MIT Press, so you can buy it on Amazon, but there's as well like HTML links where you can access chapters for free. So it's yeah, I think it's like deep learning, uh, deep learning book dot org. That's that's the website. It's been recommended a few times. So yeah, you can 
It's uh, Ian Goodfellow and Yoshio Benjo and Aaron Corville. You can access it there for free if you're interested. It was a good book. Uh, I, I think yeah, it's a really nice book. I mean, it's uh, if you write through it, I think uh, you know, know everything about like networks and deep learning, and uh, it's uh, a nice book to read through. It's about four years old, though. Like, do you think it's still uh, up to date? Like, it's still relevant? Depending on which level you are, I would say. So, uh, if you are a student, and um, I, I think it's still on ETH lecture list, so they uh, go they have a lecture at ETH uh, deep learning. Uh, I have not looked this year, but like this book was on on the list of uh, lectures. So they go through a part of this book uh, in the lecture. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would say if you want to get into deep learning, uh, this book covers it very well. I mean, if you are front runner in the research, yeah, perhaps not. <laughs> like uh, then it's uh, I would recommend something differently. But depending on which level you are, I, I thought like as a book, it gives you a really good overview of all the concepts. Uh, or more of a lot of the concepts yes awesome okay well um thank you for the recommendations and uh on that note we're gonna wrap up thanks a lot thomas for coming on the show it was good fun thank you very much So there you go, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As mentioned at the beginning, it was quite advanced and a lot of topics. I'm sure we could have dove into many of them, but we touched on quite a lot of uh, topics. Uh, very briefly so, my favorite part was the trade-off between testing and trading. It uh, kind of resembles the whole trade-off between exploration and exploitation. Um, and in this case, uh, once you have a model that you've backtested and verified that works then you want to forward test it basically you want to put it onto the market and shadow trade it for a bit uh, to make sure that maybe that your model wasn't overfitting that you're out of sample test and moreover not just out of sample test but out of sample test on the live data that comes in with all this glitches and all the delays and lags and everything else that um, resembles the real world markets some things that are quite hard sometimes to recreate in back tests even with out of sample back tests, um, you want to put it on uh, and shadow trade it for a bit. But the question is for how long? If you shadow trade it for four months, you might get your validation, but by then markets might have changed. And as soon as you switch to real trading, boom, it's no longer working. On the other hand, if you shadow trade for too short, for a week, you might not get enough uh, data to validate that it's working. And when you switch to live trading again, boom, it's not working. So. Uh, an interesting balance. I love how I love these uh, situations when it kind of, like it's time to decide a balance, and surely there isn't one right answer. It's on a case by case basis. Maybe there are some guiding principles, but it's um, ultimately an art that data scientists have to participate in. Um, and uh, I'm sure you had your own favorite parts from this episode. As always, the show notes are available at superdatasense.com slash 405. That's superdatasense.com slash 405, where you can find uh, the transcript for this episode, any materials we mentioned, and URLs to connect with uh, Thomas. Uh, hit him up on LinkedIn, especially if you're interested in the space of energy or um, quantitative analysis of markets and trading. I'm sure you'll be happy to help out. And uh, yeah, and if you know somebody in this space, uh, very easy to send them the episode to share. Just send them the link, superdaysands.com slash 405. On that note, thank you so much for being here today. I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>